Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Mr. Gadget, and I was wanting to continue on with our little discussion of the pre-microcomputer uh, tech in the home. So we went over some of the high-tech kinds of things that were in the home uh, in the last episode there, <laughs> in the last call-in, uh, that being primarily the uh, the television and uh, the hi-fi stereo, as well as uh, you know, some of the other electronic kinds of things that were there, uh, radios with a very technical uh, group of people in terms of the amateur radio operators. And uh, so I wanted to continue on in this vein and talk about what it was like being a geek, uh, being a nerd, being a high-tech kid back in the pre-microcomputer days. Uh, to a certain extent, I think I kind of grew up, at least in the U.S., because of the space race and how we were going to beat the Ruskies to the moon, which, of course, we did. Uh, there was a lot of emphasis on science in the schools in the 60s, and that was when I went to elementary school in the early part of my, uh, you know, junior high, what would be called middle school in the United States of America, and even high school uh, the first year of high school, was in the 60s. And it was a different landscape there. You know, this is, well, it basically was the space race that invented the microcomputers that were eventually then uh, the ones that spawned the microcomputer revolution. And there was a lot of science in the schools, and there was a lot of emphasis on science in the schools, and there was a lot of science in the homes in a way that does not exist now. And uh, I was kind of reminded of this because of some things that I saw on the Internet and I then posted to Google+. And uh, I will send some of these links to Ken. He was nice enough to do a lot of uh, Wikipedia entries and things like that on uh, the subject of uh, last week's uh, show. And uh, that was very interesting information. And I'll send him some links to some of these types of things. And one of the things that got me thinking about this was the Golden Book of Chemistry. Now, there was a whole series of golden books back uh, in this time period, and I'm not sure exactly where the moniker came from, although almost all of them, they were children's books, but almost all of them had a binding, and the binding at the edge of the books was gold. But I have no idea if that's why they were golden books or if the binding was golden because they were golden books. Uh, something lost in the midst of time. No, actually, you could probably look it up on Wikipedia and find out. Anyway, there was a golden book of chemistry, of all things. And I have also looked up, and I, I have some, some references to this that I can find online. A couple of years ago, there was uh, a series of podcasts that some of my uh, uh, podcasters that I follow, uh, the Tech Podcast Group, did on uh, Christmas presents, and uh, one of the guys who was involved with that had found a place that had a uh, the online version of the wish books, which were what Sears and Roebuck Company in mail in the mail order days here, back when you used to get catalogs and go through those. And I talked a lot about the catalogs that were of interest to me as a youth, and you used to order things from the catalog. Well, the wish book literally was the big catalog from Sears that would come out in the fall here, at least in, in the North American continent, and uh, it would come out in the fall, 
And it would have all of those things that you wanted for Christmas, including the vast array of toys and things like that that you wanted as Christmas presents. And you would, of course, pour over this and make your decision about what you would ask. Uh, it was a bit of a different time frame. Uh, you didn't get everything that you wanted, and you couldn't ask for a whole lot of things. But, you know, you're one or two specific things that you were interested in. And that was very interesting for me in this regard because I looked up, I knew the specific years uh, in the mid-60s, and indeed I found exactly the things from the the Christmas wish book. And one of those was also a, a recent, more recent link that I found that was a chemistry set. And I got my first real chemistry set uh, in 64, 65, somewhere in that time frame. Can't remember exactly which year. And this one was a full-on chemistry set. It came in a metal box, which then would separate into sides, into two sides, uh, which had shelves for all the various chemicals. It came with actual glassware, not plastic versions of beakers and things like that, but an actual glass beaker uh, and uh, various bits of glassware that you could use as part of this. And I also remember my aunt, who had retired from being a nurse, and she was now a housewife, but she took my cousin, who's four days older than I, and myself, we both had an interesting chemistry, and we both got matching chemistry sets that year, and she sat down with those chemistry sets and looked through each and every single one of the models to make sure there wasn't anything that we were going to be too, you know, uh, dangerous with uh, in terms of ingestion of something. Nowadays, you cannot get, even over the counter as an adult, some of the chemicals that were readily available in the chemistry sets at the time. And uh, so I had a chemistry set. Uh, I also had a microscope. I believe that was the year following that I got a, a fairly good, uh, uh, you know, student-level microscope. And these were my pride and joy. I was, you know, very heavily into science and uh, and would, you know, actually go out and, I mean, I would actually spend my spare time, you know, doing, conducting the experiments that were in the book and looking at the results and, and even designing my own and all these types of things. And so the science from the school transferred into the science of the home. At the same time, then, or about that 65 time frame, I also got heavily interested in electronics. And at the time, there were several different outlets for that type of interest in the form of electronic kits, which you could build. So, of course, initially, I would pick up a magazine of the time frame, uh, popular electronics, uh, radio electronics, various ones like that. Uh, and those may be the names of what they mutated into a little bit later in life. But... There were several different ones, and even popular science. <coughs> and the simplest thing you could do is building your own crystal radio set. And the crystal radio set would actually involve a a crystal that was uh, uh, a, a germanium crystal. And if you were doing it the really, really cool way, you actually got a germanium crystal, and you used a, what's called a cat's whisker which was a little piece of wire 
that you would put at various points on that crystal because different points on the crystal and the contact point of the wire on that crystal would vary uh, how good the rectification was working for rectifying the AM radio signal that you were trying to get. And so you needed some type of crystal rectifier. And as I say, uh, some of the kits that were available would give you that crystal and even a mechanism to kind of uh, have the wire that would uh, actually work in conjunction with that crystal. And then you had to have a length of wire that you would uh, wrap into a coil. So this would uh, usually be bare wire that you would uh, wrap, usually single conductor, copper wire, and you would wrap that coil as a rather wide space and, uh, and wide diameter air coil, and usually that would be on an oatmeal box. So the round oatmeal cylinder you would use as your coil, and then the way you would actually tune this circuit, you'd have the crystal, <coughs> and you'd have the coil, and you would wire this together, and you would have a, a, uh, a, a tunable circuit. And the way you would actually tune it is you would tap the coil at a certain point. So you had another piece of wire that you would vary along that coil to tune it to a specific resident kind of a frequency so that you would better have better selection of your AM radio signal. This is not a very sensitive kind of thing, but it was uh, certainly, uh, in terms of its selectivity, it wasn't a very narrow band that you got with this. But you could use that to tune in the specific radio station that you were interested in and make it be louder. And all of this, then, there were no amplifiers involved or anything like that, so usually then you had a set of cams. You had a set of earphones, and these are big kind of... Uh, well, they were big, uh, round uh, things that looked kind of like a, a small donut that was on each ear, although there was not a hole in the middle. And uh, these then had, uh, well, I guess you would call them speakers, although most of them were, uh, the diaphragms were metal, even, rather than uh, just the, uh, the more uh, malleable paper and rubber that we're used to in hi-fi speakers. And we're not talking about a hi-fi kind of a thing here. You also might use a crystal earphone, which was a small earphone that would fit in your ear. There was a very tinny sound if you plugged that into a regular uh, AM radio of the time. Uh, nowhere near the fidelity of the earbuds that you would put into your music player nowadays. But uh, that very uh, tinniness of the sound accentuated certain frequencies that uh, made those frequencies loud enough for you to be able to hear over the radio. So you can build your own radio here from a few parts. And uh, you can acquire these via mail order or at various electronics kinds of emporiums like Radio Shack or here locally it was Burstein Appleby, uh, nationally you know, it was Lafayette Radio and some other radio catalogs that were on the national scale. Uh, it's interesting, I didn't find out this time, but uh, later on, <coughs> excuse me, uh, later on, I learned that uh, soldiers during World War II, and I suppose maybe even uh, as late as the, uh, the Korea uh, conflict, but I know for sure during World War II, 
soldiers would actually make their own crystal radios, and instead of having a crystal, they would use a rusted razor blade. So the same razor blade that they would use to shave their faces, when that got a little bit rusty, you could actually use the cat's whisker and you could place the wire at that point where the razor blade was a little bit rusty, and that would work as the crystal did to rectify the signal and allow you to have your own little radio. So all you would have to carry around with you was some wire, have something to wire it around, wire it up, and use the razor blade with the cat's whisker, and you can have yourself a little portable radio and listen on your headphones. Uh, hard for you to share with your buddy, but you could each listen to it. And these were the types of radios that many of the GIs would be listening to the infamous Tokyo Rose, if you were in the Pacific Theater, uh, and there was an equivalent of Tokyo Rose. I can't remember what she was called uh, for the Germans. Uh, that was a radio program that would play popular music of the day, and then a lady with a lovely soothing voice would try to explain to you how stupid you were to be fighting against them and how you should just give up and, you know, join their cause and, you know, become uh, a slave to the Axis powers. Anyway, uh, so crystal radios or even, you know, non-crystal crystal radios, the simplest type of radio that you could build, and then it would build on up from there. And there were various types of kits involving transistors, uh, more advanced ones you could build your own real AM radio. Uh, there were all types of kits, and, and some of the most popular ones, the ones that I built many, many of, there was uh, a certain kind of a, a standard way of building these kinds of things. If you didn't have a printed circuit board the way you do today, uh, but you, you did what was called breadboarding. And breadboarding would involve usually uh, some type of insulated material that have holes in it. Now, quite often, the insulated material might be uh, a piece of wood or there was a kind of a, a fake wood of the time <laughs> that was kind of pressed board and it would have holes in it. But one of the more popular kits of the day were a series of kits that Radio Shack had where all of the parts that you needed, the resistors, the capacitors, and the transistors, and and even, uh, you know, there were a couple of things that they... Uh, would use to connect wires when you needed to add or remove wires. And all these radios required a, usually a really long antenna. You know, the longer the antenna, the better in terms of the sensitivity of your crystal AM radio. I used to have, uh, I grew up in what was called, a, what is called a split-level house uh, here in the United States. And so you would walk in uh, and go up a half story to some more rooms, and then you can go up another half story to where the bedrooms were. And uh, the first entrance you could go into was a ground level entrance that was a garage and a family room in our house. And you could go down a half story to a half basement, and that was underneath the living room. So you kind of had the whole house split in two with two of the, the, the floors half a story down from the other two floors, and you kept on going up half story. Well, up in that second story window of my bedroom uh, as a boy, I had access then to a tree that was growing out in the yard, and I had a, a wire that I had gotten up into the tree there, 
ran the wire over, and then it came in my window sill and became my antenna for some of these radios that I built. Getting it up high, and the longer you could get, the better off you were. And uh, the, the kits that came from Radio Shack, they were called P-Box kits, perf board box kits. And so they would come in a plastic box, and it's a typical plastic box that uh, people of the time would be familiar with. It was two halves of the box, and the hinge was actually plastic, and uh, the box would come apart and, and open up. And it was a very uh, familiar design. If you grew up in the 60s, you know exactly what I'm talking about, the plastic pill boxes that would open. Uh, well, this is a larger size one of those, and one half of it had uh, on one side, one large side had these holes perforated in it, right? So there was, there was your perf board. All the parts you needed were inside here, and that included wire. Uh, it included all of the components, as I say, to connect your wire antenna, maybe your ground wire, or things like that. You needed a way to be able to add or remove those kinds of things, maybe even batteries that were involved. And so there were these little clips that you used. Uh, you could push down your finger and put the wire in. They were called Fallenstock clips, and that was one way you would do it. And then the these particular ones from Radio Shack had a different one. It was just kind of a post with a spring load on it, and you'd push down on the little uh, the little T-bar at the top of the spring, and that would open up the hole. You'd stick the wire in, and then you released it, and it would make an electrical connection. And so you could build these kits. It had everything in there that you needed, and you would stick the components in, cut them off, and then solder them together, and... Uh, build various types of things, uh, amplifiers, AM radios, uh, for shortwave, the, the, I think the most complex P-Box kit I ever built was a shortwave radio. It was a regenerative shortwave radio, which is a certain type of radio circuit. It's a little bit easier to build than the uh, radio circuits that are used in today's shortwave radios. And uh, it, uh, it, it involved some more complex, you know, winding of coils. We weren't just talking about a single coil on an oatmeal box with this. We were talking about some much more complex kinds of coils in order to build that kit. And there were various ones of those that I got through the years and built all of those kinds of things. We even had, and they still sell some of these, had radio check to this day. <coughs> some of the other, sorry, electronic stores sell these where you had various components on a, in a box. and So picture yourself a, a box that a typical game would come in, like Monopoly or uh, you know any kind of board game, only maybe a little bit taller than a standard Monopoly box. But you opened it up, and there you had your components all mounted, all on cardboard, and it had little springs for the connectors for whatever it was, three connectors for a transistor, uh, two connectors for a resistor. You'd have various resistors and capacitors, a couple of transistors. The more complex ones of these would even have an integrated circuit that you could use. Some of them even had a, uh, a uh, meter that you could use to measure uh, voltage and current. And you could put together various types of circuits just by using the included wires and wiring together the components in the proper way, and you could build it. And, and these kits were like 40 in one, and 75 in one, and 150 in one. 150 in one, a rather large box, and you could build 150 different electronic circuits. 
all with the components that were built into that box. So there, you didn't even have to do any soldering. You just wired things up the right way, and you had your circuit. You played around with it. You experimented to see what would happen if I do this, what would happen if I do that. You started to understand what the circuits were. You could see circuits in magazines and books that you can get from the library and uh, also that you could buy, and you could experiment with those circuits, and all it took was wiring things together. And this is how a lot of us in the 60s learned the electronics that later, why do you think that there was this microcomputer revolution that could take place when the manufacturers finally had the manufacturing down to the point where they can start selling the microcomputer chips beyond just the space program and certain specialized military applications that they had for them, okay? Just because the chip existed didn't mean that the average person in the home was going, somebody without an electrical engineering degree was going to be able to understand and apply those. And the reason I will put to you that it was a perfect situation for the homebrew club, right, the homebrew computer club to come to fruition in the San Francisco Bay Area and thusly be the spawning point for the Steve's to start Apple Computer and uh, CPM and all of the other kinds of things that the microcomputer revolution in that area, the reason why, and the reason why there were so many people like myself who were ready to understand the complexities of the computer and the possibilities inherent within those computer chips that were now available to us is because we understood the basics of electronics, which we had learned through those kits and through that in that 60s focus on science, the focus on science, the focus on, yes, if you're interested in chemistry, you can experiment with chemistry. And, you know, you could experiment with various other kinds of things. I mean, the the going beyond just Lincoln logs and things like that that were early building kinds of things and being able to have an erector set and, you know, how many mechanical engineers came out of that. And this is important because I don't see that today. Another thing that kind of inspired me to have this as a topic and to kind of continue on here in terms of the, the, the geek kinds of things that were in the pre-market computer days, we're talking about very crude compared to today's kind of world. But this was a technology that was available and it was in the hands of young people who are interested in it. I ran across a, a site that, uh, once again, in San Francisco, there is a organization, which I assume that this is kind of going along the lines with the general charter that this uh, organization has, but it was specifically going to be starting a project to encourage young ladies of color to inspire them and to to give them the opportunity to understand what it's like to program 
uh, and what it's like to be a programmer in case that's something that they would be interested in pursuing as a life's career. I stated this in, in something that I said when I posted this in Google Plus, and I'll state it here. Okay, in 30 plus years of making my living full time with microcomputers, I'll state two things. Number one, people need to stop telling girls that they are bad at math. Okay? Because I can't tell you how many people who I see who don't think they're good at math really are, it's just they weren't getting some concept that some teacher didn't know how to teach them in the right way. All right? And as a father of two technical young women, who I always encouraged in anything that they, want, they wanted to pursue, including anything technical that they wanted to pursue, and that offends me that anybody would say, oh, you're a girl, you would never be able to understand this, okay? We need to encourage this. And the second thing is the fact that this is young girls of color. Because I will tell you, in my 30-plus years in technology, okay, it is by far the exception rather than the rule to see anybody that is not a white guy. With the exception of my brethren from the Indian subcontinent who are now in the U.S. working in IT jobs. But that's a recent phenomenon. I'm talking about within the United States of America, at least. Now, hopefully it's different outside, and we just need to do better within the United States of America. But I'm telling you for a fact, okay, not everybody is a scientist. Not everybody is an engineer, and not everybody is a computer programmer. And we cannot afford to miss the chance to give people who would be good at that. We can't afford to lose any scientists. We can't afford to lose any engineers, and we can't afford to lose any computer programmers. And I don't care whether you're red, green, or blue. Every single person who has an aptitude to do any of these technical kind of careers needs to be encouraged in every way possible to pursue them. And I don't see where we have in the next generation the people who are going to build all of the cool little gadgety toys that I love because I don't see them learning the basics of those gadgets and, and that basic knowledge that then allows them to understand that theory and go out there and make improvements on it. And with that in mind, in next week's episode, which will be fortuitous because it will be just before the big Christmas shopping opportunity of Thanksgiving week, I am going to talk about various and sundry companies online that sell kits. There's a big, huge kit resurgence here in terms of electronics. And if you know a young person who wants to be a chemical engineer, 
I'm not sure what I can do for you in chemistry because nowadays you don't get glassware, you get plasticware, and you don't get real chemicals. You get things that have been deemed safe for, you know, children, and it's it's extremely curtailed. And so that avenue, I'm not sure, is there. But electronically speaking, there's lots of kits out there to get people started on programming and started on the wonders of, I mean, one of the coolest things is just writing that first program where you get an LED to blink on and off. And you did that. You wrote that program that got that LED to blink on and off in a certain pattern. And it's hard to describe how cool that is. I did that, you know, and even building a kit. And there's all kinds of kits that I think that would get kids who are interested in technology to understand some of those gadgets that they're using. Because right now, I think it was Asimov. I may be wrong on this, but I think it was Isaac Asimov. He's the one who says a lot of these really cool things like this. And I believe it was him that said, no technology that's sufficient, uh, okay, any sufficiently high technology is indistinguishable from magic. For the people who don't understand it, a high technology that they're not familiar with will be seen as magic by them. And most people out there nowadays, and I would still tell you a, a high percentage of people who have the aptitude and have the I don't know how to say this, the personality type, the, the way of thinking. There's a way of thinking that you need to have, and not everybody can do it. And God bless them. I'm not saying they all should have to do it, okay? But we need to have every percentage, every person who is capable of the type of thinking processes that it takes to become a scientist, to become an engineer, to become a a computer programmer, we need all of them right, to go into those technical fields. We can't afford to lose anybody. Don't tell me that your kids don't do well on standardized tests and they're incapable of doing it. Let's get together and let's figure out what it is they need to be able to experiment like this. Because through this kind of experimentation, there'll be that interest, and once there's that interest, they will succeed at it. They will. Trust me, they will. But to the vast majority of people, including a percentage of kids nowadays that I know would probably have the aptitude to understand this, it might as well be magic. They have no understanding about how these things work. They know how to work them, but they have no understanding of how they work. And we need to get every single person on this planet who has the capability of understanding how they work on the path of understanding how they work in order so we can have them, through that understanding, have new cool things that will seem like magic. Okay? So next week, I'll talk about various electronic kits, 
that I'm aware of and various types of sources that you have on the Internet that if you know a young person that you can point them towards that or even spend just a few bucks and get them started on this path. But until then, this is Sister Gadgets, and I'll be out here on the Electronic Frontier poking around trying to find some cool new electronic gigaw or doodad that, uh, and trying to understand how it's going to work, okay? And you be careful out here. We'll talk to you next time. Bye now. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All BinRef projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Share Alike, 3.0 license.